Good morning. Let me invite you to open the scripture to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Most of our scriptures will be on the screen this morning, but I encourage you to follow along on your device or your open Bible, however you do that. And while you're turning, let me say it's a pleasure indeed to be with you this morning and to assemble with Christians to come where believers are on the Lord's Day to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is whose life and death and burial and resurrection to life again we come to celebrate. And it's his words that we start with uh, this morning. When they had finished breakfast, this of course is after the, the resurrection, and the disciples in many ways have been transformed. So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Probably referring to the fish that uh, were remaining. You may recall that Peter said after the Lord was crucified, I'm going fishing, which did not mean a uh, sort of a recreational fishing trip. He meant I'm going back to what I was doing before I met the Lord. This has been a great three years, transformative in some ways, but I'm going back now. Jesus wants to know, do you love me really more than anything? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. If you come a little bit later to the 19th verse, one of the main themes that Jesus is saying, you know, he goes through this, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, I love you. And he changes words. Uh, whether that means anything or not, you can read the commentaries and decide. But after saying this, he said to him, you follow me. And so we got a couple of themes in this particular verse, and there are some that follow. One is about leadership in terms of shepherding. We just heard about what bad shepherds do or don't do or did not do in the Old Testament. But now uh, Peter is commanded by the Lord to feed his sheep and to be a follower as well as a leader. So you follow me. So Peter as he often does, seems to miss the point, as we often do. And so he turned and saw the disciple, John, the one whom Jesus loved, following them, the one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you, that, that beloved disciple? And when Peter saw him, he said, well, what about John? Or what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? Mind your own business. A good command, a good principle for all of us. Again, you follow me. Doesn't matter what John does. Doesn't matter what all the other disciples do. You follow me. And of course, other people misinterpreted this, John tells us, so that this saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not going to die. But as with so many of Jesus' statements, this was misunderstood. He did not say to him that he was not to die, but he said, if it's my will, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what, what is that to you? None of your business. And so there's a powerful lesson here about following, and if you'll sort of mental tag that thought, I want to come back to it as we close the circle toward the end of the lesson. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs is what I want you to think about this morning with me in terms of both leading and following. Uh, as a guest speaker, it's difficult to know what, what should you speak on. What If you've got one topic, one time, one lesson, uh, what, what do you do? And so this morning, I've decided to, uh, to focus on a question that I've asked and which has perplexed me and a lot of other people for that matter 
I've asked a lot of people this question over the years, over the decades, and so I'm, I'm going to pose it here uh, this morning. Nobody, everybody's got a different answer to it, and so I'll ask you to think about what's your answer to this question. Um, it, it's a situation that's true in far too many congregations. It's widespread. Uh, and so my question is, why are there so few churches without shepherds, without elders? Now, you can do some math if you want to. I mean, we, we claim to be biblical, to be sound, and I want to talk a little bit. People sometimes snicker about what is it to be sound, but we'll see some texts that talk about that. But it's one thing to make the claim, to claim to restore New Testament Christianity, to be the church, of, to be the body of Christ, as we've all just sung to each other. Now, we can make the claim, we can sing the song, but what does that mean, to be formed as the body of Christ, to particularly in a local congregation, to be formed as the body of Christ? We know from Acts 14 that uh, were uh, disciple, uh, disciples who were appointed elders in every church by apostolic authority. And so we can learn from that that this is the Lord's will. The Lord does not want his flocks, his sheep, to be scattered abroad and leaderless. Feed my lambs was the command given to those who were apostles. Now, I've asked a lot of people this, and I'll just, if you want to take a minute and do that, just think about in your own experience, congregations that you know where you've worshipped or places where you have lived and you know about congregations or maybe places that you've attended for meetings or so forth, what, what's the percentage? I don't know anybody over 40 or more years that I've asked this question who thinks it's more than half. In other words, already we're talking about a minority. Uh, most people will say maybe one in three when they do the math. I think it's probably personally more like one in four I've preached in 40 states to a few hundred congregations, which means there are thousands I haven't been in, so I don't really know the answer to the question any more than anybody else. But I'll just ask you to think about whatever the number is, why are there so few churches which are without shepherds, who, which don't follow the New Testament order? And so I, I kind of want to unpack that question, but I want to make it a little broader and just think about not just shepherds as elders in a congregation, but about leadership about how, how does a congregation, how do we as believers get to the point that we have those who are shepherding the flock, and then, on the other hand, those who are following, because that then becomes an issue. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Same person that Jesus was talking about in the Gospel of John, where we started, and now himself transformed into not only an apostle, but an elder. I mean, if you think about Peter, this is a guy who every morning's wake-up call when the rooster crows is a gut-punch experiential reminder that I denied my Lord. Not once, not twice, but three times and with an oath. That I swore I don't know him, I don't want to be with him, I'm not one of those Galileans, you got the wrong guy. If, if you've ever felt like you've done something that really messed up your life or that you denied the Lord, think about the fact that that's what Peter represents and that what it took to get him from the despair where he went out and wept bitterly to being a leader, to being an apostle, to being the one who proclaims the gospel on the day of Pentecost, 
whose speech is recorded. And then at the household of Cornelius, the first one to spread the gospel to Gentiles, as he reminds his fellow believers later in Acts 15, it was by the Lord's direction, the Lord's decision, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. So Peter is the one who is literally transformed by the resurrection. Probably nothing else could have changed him from a downcast, despondent, despairing, broken person to now being able to lead. So here's what the mature Peter, after decades of serving the Lord, here's what he says. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker of the glory that's to be revealed to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. I'll pause here to note already, and I've put them in a different color. Well, already we've got three different words that describe this function. We have elders, older people, uh, presbyteros, presbyters, which has become a religious title. In fact, we have denominations that are named after that kind of church government. And then to shepherd, which is what Jesus said to do. And then Peter says to exercise oversight. To the word is episcopos, to oversee to use the, the scope word that comes over in English as, I don't know, microscope, ophthalmoscope, whatever scope, to look at something in detail. So exercise that oversight, that episcopos, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, and not for shameful gain but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but as being examples to the flock. Feed my lambs. I know this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, I believe it is, but surely the Lord's personal word had to be ringing in Peter's ears when he wrote this, feed my lambs, be an overseer to the flock, be a shepherd to the flock. Now, he goes on to say, when the chief shepherd appears, because all shepherding that's biblical is done under the oversight of the chief shepherd, uh, shepherds in a local congregations don't have authority to do whatever they please. Now, there are some who do uh, in a lot of different contexts. There are places, I, know I have friends in different religious bodies that have people they call elders, or sometimes they use the word presbyter or Episcopal figures that don't come close to meeting the kind of things that we're going to see described as actual elders. So, again, as I said in one of the first slides, we can claim to do something not only we, but anybody, and actually not do that. But when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he talks a little bit about following those who are under the chief shepherd offering guidance. Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. These are Peter's words. Now, already we've got these different descriptions, and I'll give you a little bit of a roadmap here for where we're going. I'm going to look at some of these other texts. But then I want us to broaden our focus so that this is not just a sermon about all the, all the things elders are supposed to be and so forth. I want to quickly touch base with that. And I'll again point out that we've got, we've got three different kind of descriptive terms here. An elder, a presbyter, someone who has some, some experience, some age about them, not a novice, one of the texts makes very clear, or an overseer, the episcopus, the overseer literally, 
indicating some kind of administrative ability, some kind of leadership ability. This word is sometimes translated bishop, and it's unfortunate that that conjures up all sorts of um, ecclesiastical pomp and ceremony with people with miters and turbans on their head and so forth. But the word bishop simply means someone who is an overseer, and then a shepherd, a pastor, again, conjuring up all kinds of not necessarily biblical ideas, but a shepherd, what I will call a servant leader. And I want to unpack that term in just a moment. I suggest that there's a fourth term that doesn't often get mentioned and is not in the three texts that I've indicated here which use those three terms, and that is the idea of a steward. And there are a couple of texts we might look at in that regard. In 1 Peter, again, chapter 4, if you turn back just a chapter, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, which Peter has been talking about. The word here is literally the household overseer, someone who has the administrative authority to do things within the household, but it's not his house. He doesn't own the house. He doesn't really have control of the house. He only has authority to do what the owner of the house says for him to do as a steward. Paul writes to the Corinthians, divided about a lot of things. This is how one should regard us, I believe he's speaking of of apostles here, as servants of Christ, even as apostles, and stewards of the mysteries of God. They don't belong to the apostles. They don't belong to me. They don't belong to you or anybody else. They belong to God. And to Jesus Christ, we are but stewards of his grace. But here's what I want us to focus on. If you want a bullet point takeaway from this lesson, here it is. When we look at these texts that describe the shepherds, the elders, the bishops, the presbyters, the whatever you want to call them, think about which of these descriptions should not apply to all, to any Christian. Maybe with the exception of some of the biological qualifications. Husband of one wife, the father of believing children. But you set that aside, and as we look at these lists, I want us to be thinking about, how does this apply to me? Even if I'm not an elder, even if I'm not a shepherd, even if I don't think I'll ever be a shepherd, even if that's not a possibility for different circumstances in my life, but still, which of these qualities does not apply, should not apply to every Christian? So that in one way, the question of how, how does a church, how does a congregation achieve leadership, it means everybody in the congregation needs to be on the same page and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and applying all of these same principles. So think with me about what it says. Let's go to Titus chapter 1. For this reason, Paul says, I left you in Crete on an island out in the Mediterranean and we'll see in a minute where he's talking about, that, I, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, that if a man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach again as God's stewards. There are some of our words again. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Lots of things not to be here, but the disjunct now moves to the positive. Hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine, a phrase we'll see 
Again, it simply means healthful. That's all the word means. In healthful doctrine and also maybe switching for a moment to the negative to refute those who contradict. Because there are some who contradict biblical teaching and who do not follow the word, do not follow the Lord himself. And so he goes on, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, those of the Jewish sects who despised the word and followed Paul around seeking to uh, negate what he was saying. They must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Uh, you'll notice I'm using different translations. I, I'm not addicted to anyone. A lot of these are from the ESV. This one happens to be from the New American Standard. So whatever you're reading from, if it doesn't match exactly, uh, I apologize for that. And then he goes on to talk about this. I'm going to skip over this part of the text, but again, he's talking about the kinds of things that need to be refuted. So Paul is traversing Asia Minor. He says, I left you in Crete, which is this island out, out in the middle. But then Timothy, we know, for if you read these texts that describe uh, his journeys, Timothy's also following him, hearing Paul speak, watching as he writes, uh, maybe even serving as an amanuensis, some people believe. And so Paul writes to Timothy. And he says in 1 Timothy 3, this is a faithful saying, one of a half dozen such faithful sayings that are scattered throughout 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. This is one of them. If a man desires the position of a bishop, the office, some people have it translated, he desires a good work. A bishop, one who is to be, as we'll see, these terms seem to be interchangeable in these texts, one who's older with experience and has administrative ability, oversight ability, and, a, and ability as a shepherd, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the condemnation as the devil, the same condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil, this time from the New King James Version. So we've got these descriptions, and we could camp here, but I want to take a little broader view of this as we look at these texts and try to unpack what do, what do these words mean. I, I want us to think about does this describe me? I mean, we can't just make these texts some kind of sterile check-off list where you tick the box or maybe just ignore them altogether because they don't apply to me because I'm not an elder. I'll never be an elder, somebody might think. Uh, I am not now, as a matter of fact, but I've served for a decade as one. Uh, am I arrogant? With a C. Am I self-willed? Am I quick-tempered? too quick to respond in situations, particularly in an angry way? Am I covetous of someone else's good fortune, someone else's money or property, covetous of someone else's wife or husband? Uh, do I engage not only in debauchery and maybe as a drunkard, but maybe am I addicted to wine? I'm not just into social drinking, but maybe into binge drinking or partying or whatever it might be, these words cover a fairly broad spectrum. Am I greedy for gain? 
These are things that are specifically applied in text to shepherds, overseers, elders, pastors, stewards. But I'm asking the question, which of, which of these descriptions shouldn't be considered by everybody who claims to be a Christian? And not only that, am I a lover of good on the positive side? Am I self-controlled? Am I a holy person with people who know me? I don't mean a holy Joe or holier than thou. I mean, is holiness in the fear of God, of which we've already seen a text in our opening call to worship this morning, does that characterize me? Am I hospitable? Am I willing to, to help others, either by having them in my home or extending to them food or whatever it is that they may need uh, on their journey, perhaps? Am I able to teach? Or do I think that's somebody else's job? Am, am I, would I be able even to teach on the level of telling someone who asks a reason for the hope that's within me what I did to become a Christian? <coughs> Just to start out on a very baseline level. If I've uh, received the word and I've repented of my sins and turned away from them by the help of God and had the, my sins washed away by the shed blood of the Lamb when I've been buried with my Lord in baptism, if I understood all of that and why I did that, why shouldn't I be able to tell somebody else, this is what I did to become a Christian? This is what people in New Testament times did to become Christians. I, I, I should be able, maybe at least, to do I have the ability to do that? Can I maybe go a step beyond that and instruct in sound doctrine, in healthful teaching? Would I be able to rebuke those who contradict that? Am I uh, enough of a student in the Word that I might be able to recognize this, this is what the Bible says and uh, this is something else and those two things don't match? Can, can I do that? So I'm asking us not to just make this a sterile checklist, but does it apply to me? Texts on shepherding are not limiting to, limited to a tick-off box. And let's broaden the focus even a little more than this. And think about, just even in terms of, of, of shepherding, I, I believe there's, there's a description, not just a list of things, but there's a function. Think about uh, advertisements on, I used to say in the newspaper, but nobody reads the Sunday paper for job ads anymore. But whether, is there even a monster.com? I don't know, it's been a while since I looked for a job. But if you're looking at ads, you're going to find qualifications probably at the top of the list, what you already have. Without these, your application goes into round file or gets deleted quickly. Um, do you have a college degree, uh, a commercial driver's license, an MBA, a high school diploma, whatever the job says you have to have, the paper credentials that says, yes, I finished this course, I've got this certification, theoretically I ought to be able to do that. But then you get some descriptions that say, here's what you actually have to do if you want this job. This is, you have to be able to function in this regard. Maybe have good people skills, communicate well, must be able to work well with others, must be willing to travel, et cetera, whatever the job would require. So it's not just about a tick-off list, a checklist of how many degrees, diplomas, or certifications you have. It's here's the job, can you do the job? And so when we think about it in that way, there's another text I want us to camp here for a while that describes what, again, not just elders, but I think other Christians ought to be able to do. 
Paul talks to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. So I invite you to turn there. We're going to be here for a few moments. And we'll have all of it on the screen, but you can read and mark and underscore in your own Bible if you like. Therefore, he says to these elders, he's already used that word, these older men who have been appointed. Back in Acts 14, they went through the area and appointed elders in every church, and now he's come over into Western Asia Minor to Ephesus. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. So we get this flock shepherding language again, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episkopos, the oversight people, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. To you who are elders, he's saying, this is what you do. You need to take heed to the flock. You need to protect and guide and guard and feed the flock, if you will. You need to make sure your role is overseers to shepherd that which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you from among the elders, from among your own selves. And as a sometime student of church history, I can tell you that nearly every apostasy you want to talk about was often led, initiated, and sometimes consummated by elders who claimed to be the shepherds of God's flock, who led their flocks off the cliff in unbiblical ways. And Paul's warning about that here. Among, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves, maybe for sordid gain, as we've read another, whatever. Therefore, watch. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. As far as we know, Ephesus was the place where Paul spent the most time of any city he was ever in. 18 months in Corinth would be the closest, but now three years in Ephesus, during which all of Asia heard the word of the gospel, we're told in Acts 20. And while he was there, he said, in everything, I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So if you look at Acts 20 as a kind of a model, if you will, for what leaders ought to be and I think that's exactly what Paul is saying to these men who are overseers shepherds elders bishops whatever the term you want to use we're supposed to elders are supposed to and if we expand this to think about maybe this applies to me and to all other Christians even those of us who are not the husband of one wife or don't have believing children but still have all these other things am I willing to serve with humility through trials and tears that's what Paul just said. Not shrinking from declaring the whole counsel of God. Not just the positive things, but the negative things as well. To be able to rebuke the gainsayer, to rebuke those who would contradict, as well as to deliver wholesome food that will cause the sheep to grow and prosper. Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to teach not only publicly, but from house to house, privately as well? proclaiming the profitable word to Jew and Gentile alike, just as Peter had done, as Paul is now counseling, without race or religion, religious background or ethnicity or skin color or whatever tribe, tongue, language, doesn't matter. Am I willing to, without fear or favor, proclaim that word to all? To adopt a sacrificial lifestyle, 
rather than counting my life as precious. Paul said, you know me, you watched me for three years, and you know that's what I did, and I want you as shepherds of the flock to follow this model, if you will, being on guard for the flock and for themselves, that they not be taken away in the snare of the devil, admonishing night and day, even with tears, coveting no one's possessions, but providing for others. We know that Paul worked with his hands as a tent maker, a leather worker, really, to provide for the relief of those who were with him, as well as, as others as well. So when we look at the, the functions of shepherds, I think what we see already, to go back to this relatively narrow focus, we're talking about someone who's an older, experienced person, a man with a track record of successful shepherding of his own children, and who also has a good reputation from without as someone who's willing to do that, who has some administrative or oversight ability and experience. Somebody who couldn't organize a three-car parade is not a candidate for this kind of an oversight position. Someone who in their own business or, or academic or whatever their job function might be, nobody would who works with them would think about promoting them to a position of oversight, although sometimes it's true that people do get promoted to their level of incompetence, as the saying goes. That's not what you want in the Lord's church. Someone who has knowledge and ability, and I might add the willingness, to teach God's truth. That's, that's what constitutes this, this leadership model that I'm talking about. And he's also able to exhort and convict those who oppose or contradict the truth. Someone who, in a, on a personal level, is self-controlled, hospitable, sharing, giving, a, a servant leader, if you will, or a shepherd. Now, I've used this word or this phrase twice, shepherd leader. Let me camp there a moment before we move uh, around in a circle to, to closure. A servant leader, the, the term actually arose probably 30 or 40 years ago in, in a secular context of a management. Robert Greenleaf, who was an AT&T executive for decades and then retired to kind of pursue this idea, founded an institute and has published a whole bunch of books on it, which then got picked up and endorsed by people like Stephen Covey of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective Locust or whatever. There's a whole series of them. Um, Ken Blanchard, the one-minute manager uh, kind of concept, and others who have studied in a secular sense, what does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to effectively lead your organization, whatever it may be, to a place that they need, need to be, need to go? I, I think it's an example. Some people object to that and say, well, why are you importing all of this secular knowledge? Well, you know, sometimes... Um, in the natural world, people discover a biblical truth or at least something that's consonant with biblical truth or at least doesn't directly contradict it. And so I think that may be what we have here. Greenleaf himself, and you can read a whole bunch about this if you want, but here's his description of a servant leader. I think it does, in fact, in many ways fit the model of what we're talking about as each one of us tries to become, to grow, to become a servant leader in our own right in our own sphere to the ability that we can. Servant leaders achieve results for their organizations by giving priority attention to the needs of their colleagues and those they serve, not deriving benefit primarily for themselves. Servant leaders are often seen as humble stewards. That's a biblical word. I don't know that he got it from the Bible, but he's using it here. Stewards of their organization's resources, whether human resources, financial, physical, or whatever. 
And if you read any of this, and some of you have, have, have read this, I go places and people say, yeah, we, we know Greenleaf and Blanchard and all these guys. And you could bullet point all these out, but some of the characteristics that this literature talks about are listening and empathizing, healing, awareness of concerns for others, persuasion, not coercion, as, as opposed to persuading, conceptualization, foresight, stewardship, a lot of these words that are now buzzwords in the leadership community actually in some ways derive that Greenleaf himself actually had some kind of a religious background and some of this is I actually believe drawn from biblical things commitment to to building community if you will and I believe that's exactly what these passages that describe leadership whether specifically as shepherds or elders or whether we broaden the focus to include what, what am I doing, how am I growing, how do I stack up when I, if I want to just use the checkoff list, and what do I need to improve in. Now, Jesus himself called his disciples and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. That's not what this concept of servant leadership is about. And Jesus is making the contrast here. It's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man, the chief shepherd, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. These, these principles are suffused through, throughout the Bible. Now, we've already read. I won't take us back to Exodus 35. Our brother led, read this very effectively. Uh, but you, you get down to the end of the chapter, and God says, basically, I am done with the shepherds of Israel, but I am going to be their shepherd. And then you get this long silence. Ezekiel, of course, was written in exile. Ezekiel was a priest but he can't be a priest because he's in exile. And in chapter 33, the chapter before this, he gets the stunning news that the city is destroyed. Jerusalem is no more. The Babylonians have razed it to the ground. And there's no temple. Even if he was in Jerusalem, he couldn't be a priest. And we get into this long period of silence where God says, I, I'm done with the shepherds of Israel. In fact, I'm done with Israel, period. Broken covenant. And then Jesus shows up and says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep, of the sheepfold. And so we get examples of what not to be, not to do, as well as what to do. So we could camp a long time here. Why are there so few elders? It's a tremendous responsibility. Some people don't like it, don't want it. It requires much knowledge, not only of the Bible, but of how to apply that to different circumstances. I can tell you it is a huge time commitment. It's a black hole on your time and resources, often accompanied with grief. Hebrews warns us not to be the kind of people who give our leaders grief about something, but make it so they can serve with joy. And some have had prior bad experiences. Sometimes they're just too little. Uh, you probably know, I certainly do, of instances where people have been appointed as elders, called elders both in churches of Christ and other places, and they don't look anything like the kind of people, and they don't act like the kind of person that we've been describing here. So I'm back to my question. Broaden the focus. 
from just those who would be shepherds of a local flock. What about me? How am I doing? Do I need to get a handle on my own arrogance? Do I have a kind of a my way or the highway thing? And even if there were elders, I don't think those guys know what they're doing and I'm, I've got a better idea. Am I self-willed? Am I covetous, covetous quick-tempered? Am I addicted to wine or am I into debauchery and whatever, binge drinking, drinking parties, whatever that is? Peter uses all those terms in 1 Peter chapter 4, actually in the chapter just before what we're reading from chapter 5. Am I greedy for gain? Is, is the materialism that's eating the heart out of, not just in our culture, but the, in some ways eating the heart out of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we're addicted to money and the stuff that money will buy and what that represents culturally in terms of our own influence and our own status. Does that describe me? That's why I get up in the morning. It's why I do what I do now. I'm never mind spiritual things. Does this describe me? Or am I a lover of good? Would people describe me as self-controlled? You might be really angry, but people around you might not know that because you're willing to control your anger and your tongue and your temper. Uh, would people describe me as holy? Am I hospitable? Do I have the ability to teach? Am I willing and able to instruct in sound doctrine? To rebuke those who contradict? Uh, to, to, be, to be as willing to, to engage maybe those who dis, disparage the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as we would somebody who disparages our favorite college football team or whatever, soccer, whatever it might be. I don't want to get personal. Now, on the other hand, am I a servant? Would, would that describe me? Am I a servant leader? Have, have, have I grasped that servant leader concept? Am I a leader of any sort? Or maybe flip the question and ask, am I a follower? Am I at least willing to follow those who are leaders? Or am I going to wander off like a stray sheep in the my way or the highway thing, and I've got a better idea, and I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it? Do I lead or serve? Only when it's easy to do that? Or am I willing to stand up maybe and take a, take a harder role to fulfill in saying this, this is a way, that, that's a wrong way to go? And then what do I need to do to improve? What, if I'm analyzing myself and saying what, what is it that I lack? And then maybe I need to ask what am I actually doing? Not just realizing that I need to do this, but what am I actually doing to develop this. I'll close with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 9. Seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Be beseech, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. It may be that there's one or more in the sound of my voice this morning who needs to respond to an invitation. Lessons, sermons ought to be about a so what. What do I need to do about this? And it may be that you need to do nothing more than uh, in your own place, in your seat, privately acknowledge whatever it is that's the lack in your life that you need to improve that. But it might be that you're ready to respond to the invitation of the gospel to confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ having repented of sins, to be buried with your Lord in baptism. If we could help you do that in a moment as we're standing to sing, come and make that known. Or if you've done that already but have wandered away from the Lord, need to come back and 
ask the prayers of brothers and sisters in Christ. If there's some way we might help you in a spiritual sense, would you make it known while we're